Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Lindsay Stapp of Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Lindsay will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at LawAndOrderPodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Mark Blankenship, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and Order, Law and Order, Law and Order. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at Law & Order Season 8, Episode 22, Damaged. Three boys gang up on a retarded girl and you just say, oh, okay. What, are you afraid of a lawsuit? Joining me to do that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting Podcasts, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. I wouldn't be here if you had been able to fulfill my request for a desk job, Kevin. Just saying. I have no idea what that refers to. <laughs> it's something that happens in this episode, Kevin. Oh, a desk job. Yes. <laughs> Somebody wants a desk job because the mean streets of Manhattan are too Too tougher. much. Too stressful. Yeah. yeah, for his pretty face. Okay, rounding out the panel is our own special guest from the Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs podcast. Mark Blankenship. Hello, Mark. Hello. You know, I canceled my classes at Hudson University, so I could be here today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, they already have plenty of rapist professors to take your place there in Hudson. <laughs> and now you, you're de you've described yourself as a recapper for Previously TV, yes. which is a great website. So what skills does one need to be a recapper? Okay. I actually do believe one does need skills. So mm -hmm. uh, other than a willingness to sit and watch the same episode of television over and over and over again in a very short amount of time, uh, the number one thing that you need, I think, is a critical eye that is able to see a work of art from both a macro and micro perspective almost simultaneously because your job when you're writing what I would consider to be a good recap is to not only explain what's happening but to put a context around all of that so you're not mm -hmm. merely reporting you are reporting and analyzing simultaneously mm -hmm. and you also have to write it so that someone like me who's supposed to be doing their job at work wants to read your recap <laughs> instead of doing their actual work so it has to be funny and yes. engaging and a real page turner yeah it has to right it has to have a point of view it has to have a sense of an audience you i mean even if that type of audience that i imagine in my mind is never actually reading my recap i always feel like i'm writing toward a specific type of person uh depending on the show actually the show my voice i guess is pretty consistent across recaps but the show does allow me to 
zero in on particular slang or particular turns of phrase, and I always enjoy that. Now, this is a season eight episode, you know, that season. Yeah, that one. Uh, the one where the writers tried to give us more of the characters' lives. Mark, for such beloved characters, why did why does nobody really seem to like this season? Well, you know, that's the thing. Until I started to talk about this episode with people a few years ago, one time in the context of uh, Previously.TV, I didn't know that nobody liked this season because I discovered season eight in the A&E years. Mm-hmm. And that was before the internet, right? Or at least not before the internet, at least before I was looking at things online about TV. So what I have learned is that people find the insertion of personal details about the characters to be clumsy and often distracting from the smooth as butter formula that we like to carry us through a good episode. I personally do not disagree. I don't agree, however. I actually think that at its best, the additional information you get about the characters echoes beautifully with the cases themselves and provides something really nice. Although I guess another argument would be that if you wanted that you should have just watched Homicide. But that's fine. <laughs> I, I don't have a problem with season eight, at least not to the degree that other people do. I don't like it because I think that what's going on in these cops' personal lives like sucks. Like nobody just has like a normal life, right? Nobody just has like a nice spouse. They, Somebody gets engaged. Yeah, bear, and that's acknowledged for like four seconds. And we also know that in other seasons, she has like the horrible divorce. And It's this season we know. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, like nobody just has like a regular, like they have a stressful job, right? All these cops right. have stressful jobs. And no one is just like a nice uncle at home. Everyone has like a super shitty, depressing, God, you're awful right. situation. I don't like that. I like to hear, I like to think that like Briscoe, enjoys like a moment of happiness when he goes home and takes a bath at night and isn't dealing with his like junky informant daughter. I mean, I would like to rubber ducky and (laughs) exactly, exactly. Singing show tunes, perhaps. Well, and then, you know, they make you think in season eight that at least Anita Van Buren's life is all right. And then they wait until season 20 to be like, (laughs) no, her husband cheated on her. She got some sort of cancer. And now Ernie Hudson can't even really be her boyfriend because it's too painful because of the disease she got from her philandering ex-spouse. It's like, oh, I thought she made it out. Yeah, me too. Me too. Nope. But you're really right. It's like not actually necessary for every character on the show to be having a Baroque tragedy befall them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Mark, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. Definitely it's... Briscoe. I mean, there's no question. Right. But I would actually have loved to see Briscoe and Fontana together. (laughs) Think about it. I loved Fontana. Loved him. Because Fontana's like the old dude who is still wearing the like $15,000 jacket or whatever. Like, I would love to see two old guys who come from very different worlds. I would love to see how they operate together. That's my fantasy. Wouldn't that be like mustard and brown mustard? <laughs> no, that would be like the movie Bucket List. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, what I think it would be is that what would happen is they would end up really fighting all the time because they both think that they know best. Ah. And I, I would really enjoy that. Now, But if we're talking about actual pairings that existed, I have a perpetual soft spot for Briscoe and Curtis. Mm-hmm. I also know that Ray Curtis is not among the most popular, but... I think that Briscoe and Curtis are great. I love it when Curtis refuses to take like a free meal at the diner and Briscoe's like, come on, kid, live a little. And Curtis is like, no. And then he, 
I just I really like that. Do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Oh gosh, uh, yes, that would be Abby Carmichael with McCoy yeah. because Abby Carmichael. The, I don't know if you have this ingrained in your mind as much as I do, but. And that very first episode where we meet her and McCoy's like, I didn't know what you like to eat. I got ribs and I got you a salad. And then she's like, you know what? I'll eat you graze. And she shoves the salad in. <laughs> that is my tea. I am here for it. So I just love Abby Carmichael's no nonsense down home sass. Yeah, I love her too. Love her very, very much. And I love her scratchy little voice. I love everything yeah. about her. <laughs> You guys, I, as I was saying before we started recording this episode, I felt like I was going to be in a safe space. And the fact that you just said that made me know that I am. Yeah. Thank you for that. I like I like to think that on the weekends, Abby Carmichael would unwind by beating up hobos. <laughs> With her like straight brown glossy locks and her yeah. pearl earrings. Exactly. <laughs> but maybe she would do that, but she would be wearing like her university sweatshirt. Because, exactly. you know, she's it's the weekend. Exactly. <laughs> Now let's look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 8, Episode 22, Damaged. Just to note, in discussing this episode, we'll be using the words retard and retarded. Although it doesn't reflect present-day attitudes about these terms, these words are important to the plot of this episode. If you still have problems with the use of this language, we invite you to listen to a different installment of our podcast. A teacher is wounded in a run-of-the-mill schoolyard shooting. The girls say they love Mrs. Novak because she stands up for them, especially when she makes sure those three boys got suspended for having sex with them in the music room. Kids shoot teachers over a suspension. One of our witnesses said the boys who got suspended were in the parking lot right before the shooting started. They were gone when we got there. Yeah, there was a Camaro in the lot that belongs to one of them. The principal's rounding them up for us. The plot thickens when CSU determines there were two shooters firing at each other. One of them was at that douchebag's Camaro. So if the Casanovas had one gun, who was firing the other? Briscoe and Curtis find Sally, who skipped school the next day. Sally admits to shooting at the boys because the three of them raped her older, intellectually disabled sister Valerie. And mean Mrs. Davenport didn't report it. Meantime, Ray is asking LT for a transfer to a desk job, and Lenny's meth-addicted daughter, Kathy, has agreed to <laughs> testify against her supplier. So put a pin in that one for just now. <laughs> the detectives quiz Valerie about her encounter with the boys and whether she knew what happened to her. Valerie says they were playing a game called sex. They find out that the boys also sexually assaulted her with a soda bottle, and Lenny and Ray take them into custody. Okay, uh, a school shooting is pretty serious, but they seem to dispatch with that storyline pretty damn quick. Yeah, they're not really concerned about a whole lot of things going on at this school. Like, everyone's incredulous. Like, there's all this sex happening at the school, and teachers are like, meh. (laughs) 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 Their their cavalier attitude is truly shocking. Yeah, I think even the ballistics guys, Mark, are like, so, so, like, what was actually going on in that music room? (laughs) Was somebody banging on the piano, if you know what I mean? (laughs) Oh! But it's also so true that one of the things Law & Order loves to do is terrify parents. I feel like (laughs) there were two great motifs of Law & Order in the late 90s, early 2000s. One, the internet is ruining everyone, and it is currently going to ruin you. And two, 
parents have no idea how to control their children, which I know is a theme of all art through all throughout all time. But like they were going all in on teens having sex on camera and then killing each other over it. If you remember from this period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Both of those things came true, though, so I don't <laughs> see what the problem is. <laughs> I should have said Law and Order, the Cassandras of their day. Uh, yes. <laughs> now, apparently these guys are really upset because they can't sling the D because there's a padlock on in the music room. That's yeah. how they dealt with it. Well... We'll just put a padlock there. You won't be able to have sex anywhere in this crappy school. I don't know about you. I mean, I went to school in the late 80s and early 90s, right? So not like too long before this episode is supposed to take place, right? Right. I went to school on Long Island, not New York City. We had guards in our school, like hall monitors, like mm-hmm. paid like employees. We had a metal detector. We couldn't go anywhere without a hall pass. Maybe I was just ignorant of what it was my classmates were doing, but there certainly was no like group of six people disappearing for protracted periods of time for orgies. Yeah, uh, in my high school, so I, I've, I just have no idea how that would even like come to be. I don't know. I mean, am I am I crazy to think that this could happen? I don't know, Mark. I'm actually having FOMO that that was happening and I wasn't invited. <laughs> <laughs> well. I was um I went to a semi-rural high school in Tennessee and I left campus every day to get lunch in my senior year because I was such a rebel and no one ever noticed. So in my high school <laughs> it actually could have happened. Like my friend Stephanie and I would drive to the next county to go to this really crappy fast food Italian place called Fazoli's, but we went there specifically because it, there was not one in our county so that we by the time we got back from lunch and came into our classes with our Fazoli's cups, people were like, what? So, <laughs> yes. What it, 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 the, and the music room, of course, because New York is just like a pit of cultural despair, it wasn't even being used, right? That's why they would always go in there because right. yes. who right. wants to use the music room? Music is exactly. almost... It's like the library today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Obviously, if you're driving a Camaro to yes. high school in 1998, you're a future felon, right? right? That's right. If you're driving, but this is the thing, like, what, like, New York City kids drive to school, period? Like, why were those kids I think you're missing the point. Mark, Mark is picking up what I'm putting down about the Camaro, yes. right? Oh, my gosh. So, yes. Although, I do want to say, that's a fair point, because, I granted, I've never been a high school student in... New York City. But in my experience, there aren't a lot of schools with parking lots for the students. (laughs) But you are, if said parking lot existed and said student drove a Camaro onto that lot, he should be watched at all times because nothing good. And in my mind, I I know that this isn't actually accurate, but whenever I think about this episode, I always imagine it's a yellow Camaro. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good detail. (laughs) Because doesn't that just add a little bit of extra skis onto the top? It does. It does. does. Absolutely. With a chain around the license plate. (laughs) This show obviously came out before... Uh, our cultural sensibility uh-huh. shifted away from using the word retarded either literally like because it was the clinical term yes. right. uh, at the time yeah. um, but it just it didn't shy right. away from it and, right. and, they, and they, to call someone a retard and they talked about me- the yeah. kids using it you know mm-hmm. as an insult but they also used it as in the clinical way right and it is so unbelievably jarring yes. in such a short period of time how toxic that word has become so yeah. you have like 
a character that is eloquent and beautiful like Jamie Ross just throwing saying like, can we make a rape case? Depends how retarded this girl is. Depends how retarded she is. And as an audience member, you're like, whoa, what just happened? But back in 98, you're like, hmm, yes. We must know. This is important to know exactly how retarded how she retarded is. She is. Yes, <laughs> but, it's the legal point. And that is one of the things that I actually, I mean, for all, for all of these hilarious inconsistencies that you have already helped me unearth, uh, one of the things that I do really like about this episode is the seriousness with which it asks the questions about um, a person's dignity and the ability of a person whom the state has decided is mentally impaired to determine the path of her own life. I, those mm-hmm. questions actually, despite the language being really toxic now, are still really interesting to me. And it's one of the reasons I like this episode so much. Now, guys, we have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. Rebecca, can you name the actress who plays Valerie? Her name is Lauren Ambrose. Yes. Right? right? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, just checking. <laughs> Dad says I'm special. That's why I'm special ed. Do the other kids treat you special? Nicole spilled ice cream on my new dress. Didn't even say I'm sorry. She just called me a dummy. Uh, she's best known as Claire from Six Feet Under. Yep. And she has had five Law & Order and SVU appearances. Five? Yep. Right now, you can see her in season 11 of The X-Files as newer model Scully, Agent <laughs> Einstein. Now, it's funny because when she first came on this, I haven't seen this episode in like forever, uh, but when she first appeared on screen, I knew she looked familiar and I was like, it took me a couple minutes to place her. But it also took me a couple minutes to place her because it took me a couple minutes to figure out this was an actress I knew who was playing somebody with developmental disabilities. Right, right. And which is which is not, like, there's a thing, it really kind of, like, lands on, like, how do you feel about that? Yes, we've seen it done both ways in a Law & Order franchise, and I, I don't know how I feel about it. I really don't. Mark, it is so hard for an actor to play a disabled character in a way that's uh, both dignified and not distracting and cartoonish. Yes. Same like with an actor who's supposed to have a stutter, right? It, it It's hard to do that in a way that ends up, I think, coming across as believable and and doesn't take you out of the episode. But I believe that Lauren Ambrose pulls it off in a really good performance here. What do you think? Oh, I think she's spectacular in this episode. And I think that her performance is one of the things that makes this episode, to me, so endlessly rewatchable because she, as an actress, has clearly chosen to agree with her character's own estimation of her dignity, right? She chooses to show us the struggle that Valerie is having to articulate not only what has happened to her, but why she is okay with it. And there's this defiance that she has on the stand, especially in the court. I know that I'm jumping way to the end of the episode, and I hope that's not too far outside of protocol. It's all right. That's okay. But she has this sense of fully realized defiance and selfhood that I find really moving. And I think it's... um. I think it's because also, unlike, say, Sean Penn in the movie I Am Sam, who I feel like is doing all ticks all the time, Mm -hmm. I feel like that she is choosing to make one or two acting gestures to indicate a condition exists, but she's not playing into making sure that we remember all the time that it exists. Right, right. It's believable that she would be seen as sexy or attractive by her classmates because she is. Yes. You know, it's believable that she would be seen as helpless by her family because she's not, but it's believable that she would be seen that way. She does walk the line really well. It's just, it is, I think, another thing that hasn't aged well 
is this idea of actors playing people other than who they are, what they represent, what they look like. Uh, I, I think I don't think that would be as welcome a decision today as it was in the late 90s either. No, I think you're right. And it's yeah. really interesting because I don't like you, you think about the guy uh, who played Artie, the character on Glee, who was in a wheelchair. I don't think that he mm-hmm. would be cast in that. That actor doesn't need a wheelchair. So he probably wouldn't be cast in that role now. And I think you're right. It says a lot about how much we've changed in terms of our expectations of who gets cast, which is great. Right. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. All right, now we're going to look at the second half of this episode. The boys' defense is that they didn't know Valerie was retarded. Skoda does an exam and says, yeah, she is. Then the asshole judge throws a wrench in McCoy's case, ruling the state will have to disprove the boys' defense instead of the other way around. And you have no corroboration of Gina Bowman's statement? No independent proof the boys knew the girl's mental state? We don't need it. The burden is on the defense to prove the defendants didn't know. (laughs) Don't tell me my job, Ms. Ross. The statement is out. Let's just throw out the rules of evidence along with it. Counselor, watch yourself. At trial, Valerie admits on cross-examination that she liked to dress provocatively, and boys made her excited. The jury finds the three boys guilty of rape, but then the asshole judge sets the (laughs) verdict aside. This asshole judge even says Valerie, quote, had the time of her life, Hmm. at which point Jerry Orbach yelled out, again with the dirty dancing jokes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, things aren't going well at Kathy's trial. Uh, She's accused on cross of getting a sweet deal because her father is a corrupt cop. The jury is deadlocked, and the drug dealer walks away for now. Put a pin in that one. (laughs) Jack and Jamie are furious at this asshole judge. To get him to reconsider his decision, they set out to prove that the boys knew Valerie was retarded before the rape. After coming up with a McCoy special, a trumped-up attempted murder charge connected to the school shooting, they get Roscoe to flip on his two buddies at the appeals hearing. But the defense brings back Valerie, who says she's friends with all the boys. McCoy needs to get rough on Valerie, telling her Roscoe called her retarded on the stand. Despite her hurt, she declares it was her choice to have sex. And, of course, this asshole judge throws the whole thing out again. (laughs) Later, Valerie says she lied because she didn't want to be known as, quote, the retard who got raped. Jack tells the father they've got a good chance on appeal, but he tells the prosecutors to drop the case and give Valerie her dignity. But what will the writers do with the last three minutes of the show? Oh, no. What will they do? Briscoe and Curtis show up at a crime scene where Kathy has been shot execution style and tossed near a dumpster. Well, it looks like you really can put baby in a corner. Oh. Oh, come on. Oh, she was such a heartfelt character. You were weeping. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you and fuck you. You know what? Then they ran her over in a yellow Camaro. End of scene. End of scene. Okay, Mark, you have written that this is one of the best Law & Order episodes ever. Well, again, especially for me, because to me, the structural 
ingenuity of this episode is very exciting because on one hand, you have two sets of fathers and daughters, and you have the Valerie's father who removes her from the legal system and tries to protect her that way and arguably helps his daughter leave the system with some of her dignity intact. And she is a young woman who, by all appearances, is burdened with a lot of disadvantages. And yet, because she steps out of the system that's meant to take care of her, she actually walks away with something like a with something like a victory. And whether or not we feel that it's a victory, she feels that it's a victory, or at least there's something of her that she gets to keep, right? Right. But then, simultaneously, you have... Lenny and his daughter, and we've watched throughout the entirety of season eight that he is trying to convince his daughter to stay in the system. He's the one who convinces her to turn on the drug dealer. He tries to get her off, but can't, so he says you can work the system to your advantage. And at the end of the day, the the daughter who stays inside the system is the one who pays the ultimate price. Mm. And she is the one who you would think would be the most advantaged in the system because her father is a detective, but instead she loses quite literally everything. And then we leave the image of Lenny bereft, just saying she was my baby Ray, which I think is such a powerful performance from Jerry Orbach right there. And I feel like that this episode puts so much on us to determine, well, damn, what do we make of this system? Who is it for? Who is it protecting? How am I supposed to feel about any of this? Like it really has such a moral ambiguity that I quite like and that I feel law and order is very often not given enough credit for. And add that to the sophistication, I think, of Lauren Ambrose's performance and one of the all-time great asshole judge performances. Yeah. I hate that guy <laughs> so much. I feel like it's just it's just a great episode. And the last thing I will say is if you're a super nerd for Law and Order, Lauren Ambrose's witness stand shirt is a shirt that appears in like 35 episodes of the show. <laughs> and it is just like, it's just got that. It's even got the Law and Order shirt. Mm. Because if you watch, there's always somebody folding laundry who finds a body who's wearing that shirt. So all of those reasons are why I think this is such a crucial one. Wow. Hey, it's... That shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark really uh, made the case. A really like thorough case. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Let's get back to the the uh, the criticism and commentary here. Okay. So, with a straight face, they are going with the "we didn't know she was retarded" defense. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, 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 okay. I just, I just, I, I just can't even. You can't because after ten seconds on the screen, like we all knew it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like from the second she rolls into that pizza parlor, we're like, something's <laughs> off about Miss Valerie. <laughs> and Skoda figures it out quickly. Can we please talk about Skoda in the show for just for a second, please? Skoda? For me. I don't yes. know of whom you speak. This is peak sexy Skoda in this episode. She's a sweet girl with an IQ of 65. And the school thinks exposing her to ridicule from normal kids somehow does her good. She understand what she did? Not in any meaningful way. She'd do whatever it takes to please whoever she's with. Would that be obvious to another teenager? I'd be crystal clear to anyone who talked to her for two minutes. J.K. Simmons is slamming in this episode. I don't know what it is. He's not gonna. He's like an especially is it short sleeves or something. Yeah, he's like the short sleeves. Like he's like an especially close and quiet talker. He's real sensitive. He he describes Lauren after their conversation as just like a super sweet girl, and like everyone would know that right away. 
And I just want to climb onto his lap and give him a hug, like really badly in this episode. I think you want to like unload all your problems. (laughs) I do. I do. I want to talk about my mom and my toxic childhood. I really do. He's super hot in this episode. Mark, what I I, I like about, you know, when we have Skoda or even Olivet come on is that they do this clinical test and this, you know, this examination and then they talk about it over pizza. Oh, yes. Always. Can't, can't go to the office. They have to be in some restaurant. <laughs> yes. He's wiping his mouth. It's like, yeah, geez, that, that guy is a total narcissist. I could see him killing his, ki- his kids. And then you always get both Carolyn McCormick and J.K. Simmons serving you that food acting where it's like, she, like I just in disgust just put my tuna melt down. I can't just put it down. I can't even eat it anymore. <laughs> This person is so evil. I can't finish these fries. That's yeah. one of my favorite things about when they show like uh, Orbach in the pizza place is he's always going for the second slice, which is yeah. like exactly what you do do. <laughs> yeah, you don't do that thing where like I lost my appetite. Like no one ever no, says no, that. No, no. See now you're thinking of the detectives talking to the ADA. That's right. Walking with the the hot dog in Central <laughs> yes. Park. They actually sit down buying the pretzel. Yes. Or with the Abby Carmichael, it's both a pretzel. And a hot dog. <laughs> but you're right. But the therapists, the psychologists, I should say, they always force a nicer meal out of the local court. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> now, why do we have this asshole judge pushing back against the state's case? You mean discount Bradley Whitford, the asshole judge? Uh, CPL 6048, the victim's manner of dress is inadmissible. Given the circumstances, Mr. McCoy, it's relevant. I'm giving notice of intent to appeal. Appeal all you want. Step back. And listen, I don't know this actor. He might be a lovely man, but his name is Ron McClarty, which is just the name of an asshole judge if I've ever heard one. And Mr. McClarty, if you are listening, I'm sure that you're great and you are so talented in this performance that you made me hate you forever. Sorry, you're not welcome at my pizza shop. So we have the judge uh, perpetuating the ultimate myth, which is that the rape victim wanted it. Yes. Have we gone so far down the road of political correctness that sex between willing partners is now called rape? The girl said yes. She has the mind of a child. Well, she's mature enough to be plenty intrigued by her own sexuality. Face it, counselor. She had the time of her life. Case dismissed. Could we get away with that today? Like on SVU, can you imagine? Have you watched SVU? Like, that shit happens all the time. <laughs> the judge says, Mr. Barba. Well, you know, like, but and, the, the moment judge of, Wait, how about moment of silence for Barba? <laughs> no, um, the, the judge doesn't, but there's always somebody in the court who does, whether it's the defense attorney or you know, Elizabeth Marvel or whatever. <laughs> that stuff happens all the time yeah. still on SVU. It does. They talk about it all the time, and it's always Benson who's like, it's never the victim's fault. It's like at least like four times an episode we hear Benson say that, right? <laughs> but yes, this asshole judge, I mean, his layers of assholeness, he, he hated the process and procedure. By the way, there were like, you know, Jack McCoy was talking about all the, you know, the one, this would be good for an appeal. Like every two seconds, I was like, appeal, yeah, appeal. Sir, like it was crazy. I also will say, I, as much as I am now on the record as saying that I love this episode, I have always thought it was a little cheap that they just decide to introduce the fact that a judge can set aside a verdict if he wants to in this episode. <laughs> like, this is yeah. the one? There have been some weak-ass cases made that the judge you'd think would have set aside the verdict, but this is the one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The defense didn't know this was coming down, so the judge, very casually, not even looking up, just kind of... Any motions, Mr. Painter? Excuse me, Your Honor. Does the defense wish to make a motion? 
CPL 290.10, the defense moves to set aside the jury's verdict. Objection, the prosecution proved its case. What case, Mr. McCoy? The judge isn't supposed to do that. Also, is Jack McCoy supposed to be um, conducting cross-examinations when he's standing inside the jury box? Oh, you mean like, he uses the whole space, Rebecca. <laughs> he really used the whole space in this one. It was like that more cowbell scene on Saturday Night Live. He was really using the space. I think Sam Watterson's like, there's only so many times I can get up from the table and walk straight to the, you know... Straight to the box. <laughs> they never ask the judge if they can approach. They nope. just do it. They just do it, yeah. So, yeah, so he was leaning. There's that this little thing where he's 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 questioning someone and just leaning on the box. Just got shoulder to shoulder with juror number nine. <laughs> <Six>. Yeah. <laughs> do you want some of my fries? Hey, it's fine. <laughs> I know this great pizza place. Scott and I were just there. <laughs> Now, there are many reasons why Valerie refuses to condemn her attackers. Is her inability to comprehend what's happening the main one? See, it's, in- it's another reason this episode is so complex and I think very compelling. I don't know what the answer is at first, but by the end, that is not the reason. By the end, she is articulating her own need to define herself not as a victim, but as a willingly sexual creature. Did he keep on calling you a retard? No. Did you like what the boys did to you? I did what I wanted. Your Honor, the defense requests you deny the state's motion to reverse your prior ruling. And like, whether or not we think that she has made the right choice, whether or not we agree with her, whether or not we still think that she was raped, because I certainly do, that is a that is by the end what she's saying now and at the, but at the beginning honestly I don't know and I don't know I feel like it's she's been written in such a way that maybe she doesn't know hmm. I think that it's because she wants acceptance oh totally oh, yeah. and so does everyone else in this episode yes. right I don't think it's about Valerie wanting sex just like you know other people want I think it's her wanting to be accepted and her wanting to be hung out with yes so we do get two great. Uh, testimonial performances from Valerie's character, mm-hmm. from 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 Lauren Ambrose at the trial, and then at the uh, hearing to ask the judge to reconsider his decision. And in the second one, when she hears, would it surprise you that he said Hayden did call you a retard? Roscoe said that. Was he lying? No. We see this look of disappointment on her face. Mm, yep. But then she doubles down on saying that she was the one who wanted to have sex. Mm. That's right. And, and then we hear again, she has the discussion later in uh, you know the conference room back at the DA's office where everything gets worked out yep. always. Uh, but that's why I think that it's to her, it's about being like everyone else. Yes. Yeah. And if that means if that means that I will deny that I was raped because I think she understands that she was raped. I think she understands mm. that she didn't want to have sex with three douchebags in the know, music room. I think she understands that. Well, <laughs> getting having a, a a soda bottle inserted in yeah. you. Not something that, she yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that even still. That's- to me, the most upsetting detail, it's so dehumanizing and so clearly indicates what horrible boys these are. I think also the way she describes the sex is dehumanizing. Yeah. He, you know, he, they took off my clothes and he was bouncing up, he's yeah. bouncing up and down on top That's of me right. kind of thing. It's like, oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> it's so bad. But yeah, but I think you're. I think you're right though that Valerie at the end has decided that she's not going to allow it to be defined that way, and maybe she doesn't even believe it. But what she does believe is that she is going to take some kind of control. It's just so complex, and I don't. I do think it's great that the show does not expect us to be like, "Go, girl, that's right." Like you're not. You're just left to sit with it the same way that you're left to sit with the death of Lenny's daughter. Like, deal with yeah. it, folks. Is kind of what that episode is saying. Well, the episode closes with Briscoe's daughter being murdered. So uh, here's uh, Jerry Orbach's Emmy submission. She was my baby, Ray. What am I going to do? Come home with me, partner. We're at the end of season eight, so everything's going to, all this, you know, guiding light uh, <laughs> background yeah. stuff is, is coming to an end. This is how they, they wrap up the, the Orbach, uh, you know, storyline. Mm. Uh, we'll start with the expert on this. Mark, is this satisfying? Oh, yeah, to me, absolutely. And especially because this is the end of the experiment, really like again Lenny obliquely mentions this a few more times and uh there are episodes later when Ed Green will talk about will you you know do you have kids and he's like oh sorry but they don't ever really go back to this and to me this is a I find it to be a very satisfying conclusion to his whole arc in this season and tell me if this is if I should save this there's one other thing I wanted to mention about Lauren Ambrose's overall arc as a Law & Order player. Go ahead. I just think that this episode is also exciting because it is the pinnacle of the arc that so many of the guest actors took on that show, where you get you start out in a small role and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger because her first episode is in 92, in the one where Claire Danes is the killer, if you remember that one. So Claire Danes is a, is a young teenage model who kills her sexually abusive photographer. And... Lauren Ambrose plays one of her model friends, barely in the episode. Next, Lauren Ambrose plays the sister of a guy who kills his father, who is a building superintendent, because he thinks his father's background as a janitor is going to hurt his chances of getting into Princeton. Mm, okay. I remember that one. Yeah. Yep. And then, so she's his sister. And then finally, she ascends to being the central guest star. And you see it with Dennis O'Hare. You see it with Francis Conroy. I just think it's, I love watching enough of this show to be like, oh, look, someone believed in you and now you're famous on your own. <laughs> but the question is can you tell us the arc of the shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving saving today. today. Visit sling.com to see your offer. All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It is time for 
Ripped from the headlines. I'm dreading this one. Dreading it. <laughs> you think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the headlines. This episode is inspired by the 1989 rape case of a mentally disabled girl by a group of high school athletes from Glen Ridge, New Jersey. The boys were in a park after school when the 17-year-old girl arrived to play basketball. The teens convinced the girl to go with them to a nearby home. They urged her to take off her clothes, and there in the basement, seven members of the football team took turns raping her. They also sexually assaulted her with a broomstick and a baseball bat. The arrests of five students divided the town, some saying the star athletes from well-to-do families got special treatment, others blaming the girl for being flirtatious and eager to sexually explore. At trial, prosecutors argued the disabled girl didn't understand what happened to her and didn't know she could refuse their sexual overtures. Attorneys for the defendants said the girl had pursued the boys, a move reporters dubbed as the Lolita defence. After 23 weeks of testimony, the jury convicted four of them on charges ranging from conspiracy to rape. The case was the basis of a book and a TV movie, Our Guys, Outrage at Glen Ridge. Okay, so the legal standard in the real-life case that they had to prove was not that the victim was able to give consent, but that she could understand and she understood that she could say no. Those two things are not the same, are they? They're not the same thing no. either way. No. It's total bullshit. <laughs> Oh, God. I remember that case. The terrible, terrible case. Oh, I had never heard about this before, and it's just horrifying. Is a girl with an IQ of 64 able to consent to sex with a baseball bat and a broomstick? No. no. I don't think... God, no. I mean, I don't... I think the idea that anybody would pursue that situation or would deserve that situation, even if they were... Or make that legal argument. Flirtatious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you... I mean, you hear about cases sometimes where uh, people who are prostitutes end up in these situations and they you get you get convictions because, you know, that's not the deal. Right. That like, you know, something horrible happens that isn't what was agreed upon. Um, Yeah. No, I that whole thing is ugh, ugh. Horrible. Yeah. I, I bet those kids are like hedge fund managers now, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still probably. In prison, are they? They're not, but they are on the sexual offender registry. Mm. Mark, surprisingly, the judge in this case waived the rape shield law and allowed in evidence of the girl's sexual history. <sighs> and the defense argued that she came on to the boys and they are the victims. Ugh, ugh. It's just so infuriating. It's infuriating. If you were a jury on that trial, would you be receptive to hearing that kind of evidence? No, I mean, but then again, it, I, I, I can't believe that there was ever a time that a jury was receptive to hearing that. And probably yeah. there By are the way, more I, people. I knew you would say no, but. There are probably <laughs> more so. people in the world even right now who would accept that than I would like to believe. As an aside, Rebecca, during the four years that it took to go to trial, uh, the teen that was dubbed the mastermind of the rape was charged in a separate sexual assault in college. Not shocking. No. Not me. shocking to you no, at all. No, no. I mean, this is not like one of those things where like people do it once, typically. I mean, I think that, you know, that kind of like predator behavior, it really is a thing. I mean, and I think as much as like parents and PTA members or whoever, stupid asshole judges want to be like, he's a good kid who made a mistake. You know, if you really took an honest poll of a lot of the girls and women that these that these assholes like encounter in their lives, it probably, you know, describe a pattern to you is what I'm guessing. Now, one of the saddest parallels in the real life story in the TV story is that even during the trial, 
The girl said she still wanted the boys to be her friend and she didn't want to get them in trouble. Right. Ugh. So again, I think this is a case where this girl understands enough that she wants to be accepted like everyone else. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think also there's a thing where, you know, people talk about confronting your accuser, right? Yeah. There's also about like confronting the accused, you know, especially when it's somebody who was your friend. And we, we see this a lot and we... We see this in real life cases, too. You know, when you're actually sitting in the courtroom on the witness stand and you're accusing someone that you know and that you know people you know know and that people that you know maybe are on that person's side, like it becomes more complicated. It becomes more like of a social uh, test. You, you know lost I mean? me at a couple you knows. Well, like they're high school kids. You think about like the St. The St. Paul's case, the big famous case that happened here when a couple of those kids got on the stand and they talked about the behavior of the defendant. Some of them weren't willing to say like they were still saying like, oh, he's my friend. He's whatever. Even as they were describing this like pattern of behavior, it was difficult. It's difficult, especially when you're kids to break that social order. That's that's all you have when you're a teenager. Yeah, I can see like wanting to maintain friendships that you have. Uh, Mark, it, like this is, uh, I think, a case where the girl wanted to get into a, a friendship or a, at least maintain what she thought was a friendship. Right, right. Well, that was a pretty fucking depressing episode it of was. Law and Order. We were back and talking about how uh, sexy Skoda was again. Like we on that note. <laughs> but I feel like, though, one thing that I think is true is that this episode, again, does a very good job of making us face things like this. And I will just say, perhaps on a more positive note, Moral ambiguity is something that primetime drama on NBC is perhaps not given credit for delivering, and I do feel like they deliver it here, and Skoda did look fine. So, yes, <laughs> there is that. Amen. Well, we really do like, you know, finding the things that don't work about a particular episode, mm. and other than the... Um, the use of the term retard and retarded that doesn't sound so great in 2018. This was a pretty solid episode. It's pretty solid. And hard to find things to really pick apart. Solid as Skoda's biceps. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that is going to do it for us. We want to thank our special guest, the law and order expert, Mark Blankenship. Mark, where can our listeners follow you online? Well, the best place to find me is through the aforementioned podcast, Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, where I, uh, along with my co-host Sarah D. Bunting, post a new episode almost every week. You can find us on Twitter at Talk Songs or on Facebook at facebook.com slash mastas.podcast. That's M-A-S-T-A-S, short for Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. Uh, and if you want to follow just me, I'm on Twitter at I am Blankenship, where I mix a variety of pop music and drag queen musings with <laughs> silly jokes, Oscar facts, Broadway trivia bits, and occasional retweets of things my mother has said to me on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to include a link to your article about this episode in our show notes. Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you? Well, I am not as funny a tweeter as... I am Blankenship. But if you want to follow me on Twitter anyway, I am at Reb Lavoie. That's also my handle on Instagram. And you can also listen to Crime Writers On or Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by... 
Theodore Lavoie. Content <laughs> assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. You can get the first month free at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for Criticism and Commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio <laughs> and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.